0: Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the Church of Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com. Or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy.
1: A lot of us think you need to hear the gospel maybe once in your life and then you believe and you say a prayer and then you just move on and then you have to grow up to other truths. But the truth that is the impetus behind all other truths is the gospel. And the gospel is more than just a story of a man, who was God, who came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died uh, a cruel death in our place and took the penalty of sin upon himself, was buried and rose again on the third day and uh, then ascended to be with the Father. The gospel is more than that. It is more than just a story It is a power, it is a life, it is a gift that changes us. But it's not a gift that is stagnant 2,000 years ago that we believe in a historical sense. Did Napoleon exist? We'll go, oh sure, did he really do all that conquering of the nations around France? Sure, we believe it. That's not what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you believe in one who lives And what the gospel introduces us to is the fact that this one who lives intends to do his living in us. So that we actually, through these hands, through these feet, through these eyes, through these mouths, through these hearts, through these I already use minds, are able to showcase the life of Jesus. It's a supernatural idea. It is something that is gifted to us by the labor of Jesus Christ Himself. And so I want you to listen with fresh ears. I don't want you to just listen for the person next to you. You know how you can sometimes do that? It's like, they really need this. (laughs) I want you to be the one who really needs this this morning. I want you to deliberately choose to be the one who really needs this message. Built by God. I like it. This is actually one of my favorite phrases. You may not have ever heard me say it at Ellers. That's what's funny. It's about time I have a message called Built by God. When I was, oh, 20 or so, I was praying, and I don't remember all the details about it, but there was a character in the Bible that I ran into, and I tell you what, God spoke to me about this guy. It was one of the first Hebrew words I ever studied, was this guy's name, and his name meant built by God. Isn't that one of the coolest names you've ever heard? His name actually means built by God so I have a whole message about it. Uh, so our word in the Hebrew, look at, I even put some, some Hebrew there for you. Now, just in case you're thinking of reading this, you're going to read from the right to the left, okay? And that really messes you up when you're uh, an English guy. Uh, but bana, so it's a verb, and all the roots of the Hebrew are verbs. They're three-letter verbs. And so it means to build to rebuild, to establish, cause to continue, to build in such a way that a structure will never fall. See, this is a God word. This is a word to not just describe someone building a house down the street. It's the stuff God builds. And when God builds, he has a certain way that he builds. And if we're going to build, I say, let's build the way God builds. You know that Jesus was a builder, it sounds sort of strange because you could say, no, he's a savior. He's a redeemer. He's a shepherd. He's a builder. He's the carpenter from Nazareth. Isn't that strange that he was a builder? And what's interesting is then those that followed him, one of the guys that wrote most of the New Testament, his name was Paul. You know that Paul was a builder? And you could say, no, he was a preacher. He was an evangelist. He was a tent maker. You know what a tent maker is? It's one who builds dwellings. Isn't that a fascinating notion? So Jesus was a builder. He built houses. And Jesus said, tear down this temple, this house, the house of God. I'll rebuild it in three days. He's like, hey, I know how to build. I'm going to build this thing in three days. They laughed. It took 46 years to build this Jesus. But the temple, the house of which he was speaking, was his body. He referred to his body as a house, as a temple. And God builds houses. Houses. He knows how to build houses. And so, in, in this message, where this is flowing from, I've been doing an ongoing study. Uh, the way I describe it is to rule a nation. I'm actually fascinated with if I'm going to train up Josephs and Daniels in this generation, and say they were entrusted with the North Korean government, just all of a sudden North Korea said, please, will you take over? That would be quite a mess. Haiti would rank up there right with it. Take over Haiti, please, oh Christian. Weren't you trained at Ellerslie? Take our country. Would you be ready for that? What is involved in the building of a nation? Well, it's the same stuff that's needed for the building of an individual life. And so the flow of this, as far as in my study, has been in the concept of God building. How does God build? So we just learned the word Bana, so now we're going to put a Yah on the end of it. The Yah is the minimalized version of Yahweh, which means He is. It's the proper name of God. So we oftentimes know it as Jehovah. But Yah, when you do Bana Yah, that is a name. It's actually a proper name in the Hebrew of one of David's mighty men. Bana ya. You probably would pronounce it Banaya. But that's what his name means. You can see it right there. Built by Yahweh, built by God. Isn't that great? So here, let's, I'll introduce you to Benaiah. Benaiah, if I'm going to pronounce it correctly here. Banaya, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man from Kabziel, who had done many deeds. You'll understand why I was fascinated with this guy at the age of 20. So I listed out his great accomplishments for you. He had killed two lion-like heroes of Moab. I've always liked that line, two lion-like heroes He also had gone down and killed a lion in the midst of a pit on a snowy day. Uh Uh-huh, that's this guy. And he killed an Egyptian, a spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, so he went down to him with a staff, wrested the spear out of the Egyptian's hand, and killed him with his own spear. There's the gospel for you, right there. A mighty comes down, appears vulnerable, appears weak. What is this guy doing? Jumping into a pit. Why would God come into this pit? And yet he comes down to kill the lion. Well, look at this. Killed an Egyptian, the symbol of the world. A spectacular man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, fully armed. And what does Yah, do? But somehow gets this guy's spear from him. And with the very spear that the enemy used, he kills the enemy. Don't you know how the cross works? The cross was the enemy's weapon. And what does God do? He wrests it out of the Egyptian hand and sticks it right in the gut of the enemy. Well, that's the cross right there. Bananiah, built by God. Those things, Bananiah, the son of Jehoiada did and won a name among three mighty men. And David appointed him over his guard. You know that Benaniah was actually put over what's called the Carathites and the Pelathites. Those are the hired ones to protect the king. So they're the king's bodyguard, the one who was over the king's guard, those that would lay down their life, sort of like the sentinels or the secret service, that he was put over them. He was in charge of the king's life. Isn't that neat? I like that. How does God build a man? Well, that's been one of the key questions of my life. I want to know what a man is, and I want to know how one is built. And so the entire construct of discipleship flows from this idea. And so at Ellerslie, one of our specialties is focusing on discipleship. How? What is the precept upon precept that we are going to build? And I was saying this last week to the Ellerslie students, a lot of us show up at Ellerslie with like a kitchen sink. A kitchen sink is an aspect of the house that God is building. And it's a good aspect. It's an important aspect. However, when you turn on the faucet, no water comes out. And it's frustrating. Our Christianity, we have the right pieces, but it doesn't work. Because we did not build properly. Paul calls himself a master builder. Are we master builders? Do we even understand how things are constructed in the spiritual realm? So, if you're building a house, you dig a hole. You lay a foundation. You build walls. You stick in the, all the piping, all the electrical... And then, you know, at a certain stage, we're ready for the kitchen sink. There's nothing wrong with the kitchen sink, but many of us have a kitchen sink without plumbing. And as a result, if you don't have the plumbing, you get frustrated with your kitchen sink, which does not produce what the scriptures say is supposed to produce, living water. And so don't throw out your kitchen sink. What you need is to go back to the beginning. Let's lay some foundation stones. In this message, we're going to lay some foundation stones that are very, very critical to being built by God. So how does God build a man? How does God build a family? Now, would the answer to that question be different? If I was going to say, well, here's how God builds a man. Oh, now we bring up family. Well, that's a completely different topic. Let's start over. Here's what I want to prepare you with. The way God builds an individual is also the same principle, the same construct of how he builds a family. And so when you begin to understand these truths, you can apply them to any arena of your life. How does God build a church? Well, I'm not going to throw a shocker at you and say, well, individuals and families are one thing, but churches, whoa, those are a completely different one. Now, there are different moving parts. There's, I could say it this way, more moving parts. However, the same principles are involved. How does God build a nation? So if you actually learn how God builds an individual, did you know that you would have the raw materials and the understanding and the principles of how to build a nation? It's not exciting? Some of you have been thinking, I've always wanted to build a nation. The scalability of truth. So if we're talking about scalability, if we have a, a small thing or we stretch it out to be a very big thing. An individual stretched all the way out to a nation, stretched all the way out to worlds. What is the truth? The truth, one of the ways that you can test the truth of God's word is that it's scalable. It's applicable anywhere in the world, any tribe, any tongue. The truth is transferable into any culture, any nation, any generation, any time period in history. It doesn't matter. If it's truth, it's truth. And it works. And it sets free at any hour of all of history in any part of the world. That's why certain doctrines today that are very special to Americans, you know, about health, wealth, and prosperity, they don't transfer very well. And so as a result, you begin to realize they explode themselves or expose themselves very quickly. They are not truth. They don't match with the word of God first and foremost. They keep self on the throne. It's all about us. It's all about what we want instead about the glory of God. And so as a result, when you get truth, you find that truth is actually able to be scalable to any size, whether it's small or whether it's big, and it can go anywhere. It's transferable. So if you learned here in Windsor, Colorado about how to build an individual life, did you know that you could go to North Korea and learn to rebuild the nation? It's not an amazing thought. I get excited about these things. You guys aren't as excited as I am. So if it works small, it works big. And if it works big, it works small. Technically, you could start by studying how to build a nation and then transfer those same truths into how to build an individual life. So here's our word again, just to keep you sharp and to keep you fresh with it, bana. To build, to rebuild, to establish, to cause, to continue, to build in such a way that a structure will never fall. So what I want to do, and I do this every now and then, but we're going to break it down into its parts. So bana is a Hebrew root word, and it has three letters in it. And so I I want to train you in those three letters here to understand where that definition even comes from of to build. Okay, so what is built into the word build? So our first sound is b. And that comes from the letter bait. And bait, the symbol for bait, is actually like a house. It's like a tent with an opening in it. And it actually means house. Get this, it means in. And so it's the second letter. Just remember, the elderly students, remember when I said second? is very important. Well, second is bait, and it means in. And so when we are in the second man, Jesus Christ... We have salvation, and so bait is a house. And so that's the very first letter in this word. Remember what our word is, Bana. Okay, so the next sound is N. N. Do you guys understand what I'm saying? I don't know if I make any sense. N. Like an N sound. Here it is, and the and the letter is Nun. Remember Joshua the son of Nun. That's how you pronounce it. Is Nun. It looks like Nun to us, but Nun. And what that means, the, the symbol for an a nun is a sprouting seed. It's like a seed that has life coming from it. Jesus is the seed. And so he's the seed all the way from... Remember, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And Satan tried to stamp out the seed all throughout history. And it, the, the seed... Trans, I mean, it's an extraordinary tale just to follow the seed throughout history. But it's, uh, it ends up being Jesus. And Jesus is the one that was prophesied. Of, and so the symbol is seed or air or sun or get this continuance. It's that which continues forward. So remember, we had a house and then we have the word continue or sun or air. And then Banna. So this is the letter he, which means to reveal, to show, to demonstrate. It's a picture of a man with his hands up sort of like demonstrating or showing all the earth what is true so the concept of this word bana is something that is built to continue it is built to never fail it is built to last for all generations and it is built to reveal so it's not just something that's built some of us you know put together a house just so that we have a roof over our head god does not build just for the moment he builds forever So when he's building you, he's building something that will continue and last. And he's building something that will reveal to the heavenlies something very specific. God builds to last and to reveal. So if you're going to build as a master builder, you better get on God's uh, agenda here. God builds a God way. And I would happen to want to add on to that. God's way is the only way. It's the way that works. So even his word to describe the idea of building includes those two concepts, built to last and built to reveal. Isn't that neat? So let's go to Psalm 127. It's going to seem somewhat like an odd change of pace. However, this is very purposeful. The gospel hidden in Psalm 127. Now, many of you know Psalm 127. It's a little short psalm. So when you're like paging through psalms looking for something to read, we have a tendency to gravitate to Psalm 127. It's like, oh, now here's a psalm that's my size. (laughs) And then those of you that have children, we have a tendency to gravitate to Psalm 127 to encourage ourselves, especially in the dark days of parenting. And so a lot of us don't actually recognize the gospel in Psalm 127. We just see a little hope and encouragement and, and exhortation in regards to our parenting. Okay, so let's look at this real quick. Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, and I happen to make that a little big for you just so you wouldn't miss it. So unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. By the way, this, this psalm sounds like it's a wandering psalm, like it's talking a little bit about building over here, a little bit about keeping, then and now it's talking about it's vain to do this, and God gives his beloved sleep. And we're like, what does that have to do with anything? But we just keep reading, because it's a short psalm, we'll get through this. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. Now, what does that have to do with anything we're talking about in the beginning of the psalm? The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. So let's just be honest. Psalm 127 rambles a little. Okay, David gets inspired by one thought and then veers off to another and then, you know, talks about sleep over here and then, oh, children too. Let's just throw it all in the kitty while we're talking here in a few sentences. Is this a rambling psalm or is David saying something very, very specific? Now, I already gave something away by saying the gospel revealed or hidden in Psalm 127. Did you see it, though? Yeah, it's sort of hard to see. It's, it's hidden. It's a, it's a level two thing. You know, gold sometimes lays on the surface of the earth, but very rarely. Usually, it's a few strata down and you have to dig for it. And in this one, that's very true. The three aspects to God building. Do you know that the three aspects to God building are found in Psalm 127? It's a construct of God establishing something. And what were the three things? Remember our three letters? We had the concept of the house itself, the structure, the frame. Then we had the idea of the continuance or built to last or that which would be preserved for all time. And then the final one was the reveal. That which produces and shows the world. Okay, in Psalm 127, we actually have all three of those. You just may not recognize them. So first of all, it's important to know when God is building, he's not just building material structures that will fade and rust and break down. He is building things that are eternal. Yes, physical structures, he's not against those, and he builds those properly as well. However, God is interested in living dwellings. The Feast of Tabernacles in the Old Testament They were to all bring a lulab, branches from trees that had greenery on them, and they would build them into little dwellings, little abodes, little houses. And that's how they celebrated the feast of houses. They're living houses. God is a living house in which we live. Isn't that strange? What's your position? You're in a living house. He built it. Tear down this house. I'll rebuild this living house in three days. And then we moved in. That was our house he was building. He built it in three days. Isn't that amazing? He's really good. And then what does he do when we enter into that house? He looks at us as a you know big pile of lumber. He's like, huh. And the carpenter goes to work and he begins to build us within himself into a house. And in this house, there's three key things. He builds us and he builds us a certain way, according to a certain pattern in scripture Then he builds us so that we will not fall, to continue, so that we have heirs spiritually, that we pass on a heritage. But the third thing is that we bear fruit and we show forth the glory of God. Now, remember Psalm 127. What is everyone thinking it's about? Children. However, God's giving a pattern for how a house is constructed and then what comes out of a properly constructed house. Okay? So it's not about the material structures, but the living structure within the material structure. When God is building a a home, he's technically building a family. We just happen to call it a home, the looty home. But the looty home is is just material. Who cares about the house? It's the looty home is the living substance of it. That's what God is interested in. The true construction that God is after is the living substance. So bait, or house, Nun, keep or continue. Now remember, unless the Lord builds the house, those that build it will labor in vain. And then what is the next line? Unless the Lord keeps the house, its watchmen will watch in vain. And then it starts going into children. What does that have to do with anything? It's the very construct of how God builds. When something is built by God, then it will be kept by God. And it will produce fruit under the glory of God. Beautiful. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So now we're going to begin to emphasize something very specific here. Unless the Lord builds the house. So if I were to ask you in your Christianity, who's building the house? Who's the one laboring to make your Christianity sparkle? Who's the one keeping your Christianity strong? Who's the one bearing fruit in your Christianity? Now, most of us, we mean well, but we're trying to do all this work. We're the ones trying to construct ourselves according to the scriptures. It's like, oh, boy, I need to be loving. I need to be patient. I need to be rejoicing in suffering. This is hard. Yeah, I'm going to break it to you now. Unless the Lord builds your Christianity, you're going to labor in vain. You cannot do it. Like, well, thanks a lot. What hope is there if I can't do it? Well, what hope is there is the gospel. And that is, God can do it. You see, there's a big chasm between you trying and God performing. God can and will. However, for him to be able to, the laborer must cease from their labors and must enter into what the Bible calls a rest. But doesn't that sound like the opposite of building? If I stop hammering, that nail will not be driven in. Uh, And then God says, could you set down your hammer? Well, God, if I set down my hammer, that nail will not get in. And I, I, I see it, it needs to be done. See, it's contrary to the way we function, the way we think, the way we live. And yet God stops us and says, Psalm 127, unless I am the one building This is all in vain. And it is a very difficult thing to actually enter into a rest of not just setting down the hammer, but giving it to him and saying, this is your project. Introducing Jacob. Uh, at, At Ellerslie, I have to rotate through sermons. Jacob has to come up at least, what, once a year. And so Jacob is just such an incredible picture of doing it wrong. Now, if any of you are named Jacob, I just want you to know it's a wonderful name. However, its meaning is a little suspect. When you just picture this child popping out of the womb and then the mother's you know, squishing its cheek and going, oh, how cute. And then saying, your, your name is Jacob. I mean, when you know what it means, it's sort of like, if, you, if you've heard me talk about Job in the Hebrew, Yob which means hated and despised. Oh, you cute little thing. You're hated and despised. (laughs) Who names their child that? Well, Jacob ranks right up there with it. However, it is such an extremely powerful name because of what it enunciates. So don't, for those of you that are named Jacob or have kids that you name Jacob and you're like, (gasps) what did I do? It's still, it's a wonderful name. Introducing Jacob, a man desirous to build it right. There's something about Jacob. There's two. He has a brother. Uh, it's a twin brother named Esau. And Esau comes out first. Well, he comes out of the womb first. And Jacob is the second. That's very important in, in studying Christianity. When you're being discipled, you need to begin to recognize that which is second. Because flesh and spirit, the second is what God approves of. The second is God's means. The second is the one God can receive. Remember Cain and Abel? Who was first? Cain. Cain's offering was not accepted. It's the second that their offering can can be received. Remember Ishmael and Isaac? Who was born first? Ishmael. And Ishmael was rejected. It's the second, the one born of promise, the one that is supernatural, the one born of spirit that God receives. And this is the pattern throughout the scriptures. Saul, David, the first king of Israel was rejected. The second king was a man after God's own heart. Jesus is the second. He's the last Adam or the second man. You have Adam, and then you have Jesus. Adam is under a curse, but Jesus is the blessed. And so as a result, when we are clothed in Adam, we're not in a good state. When we are clothed in our first life, that's why we must be born again. We must be twice born. So Jacob is the second. Well, there's something like Jacob stirring around in a lot of us here. You see, Jacob... Being the second is not going to receive the blessing from his father, Isaac. And the birthright goes to the firstborn. And Jacob esteems that birthright. He wants what came from God. He esteems it. So do you. Many of you in here know exactly what was going on in Jacob. You just never have identified with Jacob. But there is something that you want, but you don't know how to get it. And Jacob, ironically, wanted it even when he was in the womb. There was something about this guy that was always clamoring and esteeming that first position. He just didn't know how to get it. So Jacob, you know that his name means the heel grabber? Technically, I'm going to give you more a more complex definition of his name right here. One who takes hold of the heel, a layer of snares, a supplanter, a deceiver. And yet... He's the second. He's a symbol of all of us. There's a part of us that is longing to have what the first would have, which is the strength, the inheritance of God, the inheritance of Abraham. I want it. And yet, how do you get it? And so this is where we go to Psalm 127 and say, Unless the Lord builds the house, your heel grabbing is going to be in vain. So let's go through the story of Jacob. So here we are in Rebekah's womb. This is where he gets his name, Heel Grabber. Genesis 25, and when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, so his mother is pregnant, there's twins in the womb. There were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over like a hairy garment. Yes. And they called his name Esau. And after that, and I made it big for you so you wouldn't miss it, came his brother out. And what does Jacob's hand do? His hand took hold on Esau's heel and his name was called Jacob. It's that simple. He's a heel grabber. He's wanting the first position. He's like, hey, you can't get it. However, what is he grabbing? What is he going after? What does he reach out and take to try and gain what he's after? He grabs the first. What is the first? It's the flesh. It's man's own ability. It's man's own instinct. It's my way of doing it. And what does Jacob reach out and grab? The same thing we do. We look to ourselves and say, I can do this for you, God. I can make this happen. And so there, even in the womb, he's reaching out and grabbing Esau's heel. So his name was called Jacob, one who takes hold of the heel. It's a planter, a deceiver, a layer of snares. That's actually what scripture says. And his name was called that. Because of this situation, he was caught red-handed with his hand right on that red heel. The bowl of red stew. This is where the concept of layer of snares becomes fairly obvious. Have you ever noticed in the Hebrew that someone's name actually means something? Job really was the hated and despised. Jacob really was the heel grabber, the layer of snares, the supplanter, the deceiver. Isn't that extraordinary? So he's a layer of snares, Genesis 25. And Jacob sawed pottage. It's a very strange statement. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. And look at Jacob. He has a whole snare stirring his stew. He's probably fanning and wafting the smell of it, you know, out to the field as Esau's stumbling in. He's like, perfect. And he's like fanning it out there. And it's like, if it was a cartoon, the little waft smell would come under uh, Esau's nose and he'd go, and it would go up his nose. I've seen this before. That's exactly what Jacob's doing. What does he do? He says, sell me this day thy birthright. See, what's he after? He's after something good, just as you are. He's after a heavenly deposit. He really wants the real thing. However, how's he going about it? He's going after it. He thinks the flesh has it. He thinks that it's found inside of that flesh. And so he goes and he lays a snare for the the flesh, for the firstborn, for Esau. And he gets the birthright. Is he any happier? No. You'll notice that with this guy, no matter if he grabs a heel, if he lays a snare, sets a trap, gets a birthright, he's still missing something. Doesn't that sound similar to our life? When you grab the flesh and you attempt to do this Christianity thing your way, it doesn't satisfy. You do not have, your, your kitchen sink still doesn't produce water. You have a kitchen sink, great. But you need the living substance to make this house work. And Jacob said, swear to me this day, and he swore unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. That layer of snares. Usurping Isaac's blessing. This is where we see him as the supplanter and the deceiver. You know, this really is an extraordinary story. And the fact that the Bible just says it without even a smile on its face, just sort of acts like it's a totally normal story. Here we have the blessing that's being passed off from Isaac to Esau. Rebekah overhears, and as a result, she knows the time has come. So let's, let's go into our story. And Rebekah took goodly raiment of her eldest son Esau, which were with her in the house, and put them on J- upon Jacob, her younger son. She literally says, go in and get the blessing from him. He's like, well, I, how can I do that? So she takes clothing from Esau. Did they, did they also say they put, what was it, like goat? Goat skin all over his arms? It's like, and, and this, Isaac fell for this. That's what is extra intriguing to me. It's like, how hairy was Esau? <laughs> and then she cooked the meat, the savory venison, just the way that Isaac would like it. And she gave the savory meat and the bread, which she had prepared into the hand of her son, Jacob. And Jacob said unto his father, I am Esau, thy firstborn. By the way, do not try this in your own life, okay? This is not a good example of how to go about getting a blessing. Because many of us could say, well, Jacob did it? This is actually incorrect. He is lying. He is deceiving. He is fulfilling his name. I am done according as thou bid me. Arise, I pray thee, sit and eat of my venison that thy soul may bless me. And Isaac said unto Jacob, Come near, I pray thee, that I may feel thee, my son, whether thou be my very son Esau or not. And Jacob went near unto Isaac, his father, and he felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice. Haven't you ever wondered, why didn't Jacob at least try and hide the voice? Instead, he comes in and is like, Hi, father. (laughs) No, 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 no. When you go in, I'm Esau. I mean, The voice is Jacob's. That just bothers me. The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And it came to pass, as soon as Isaac had made an end of blessing Jacob, and Jacob was yet scarce gone out from the presence of Isaac his father, that Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. And Esau said, listen, after Isaac has divulged to him what has happened. Oh no! Your brother has taken... That blessing. And Esau's like, isn't there another one? No, there's only one. So, And Esau said, is not he rightly named Jacob? Isn't that an amazing line? You see, they knew the meaning of his name. This was who he was. And this is who we are. Jacob is a picture of those that are being awakened unto truth to come and learn That grabbing the heel has no true benefit. That laying the snare and gaining a birthright for a bowl of red stew has no benefit. That conning Isaac and Esau and gaining a blessing, even though it be the only one, still is not the means by which a great man is built. This is not how it is accomplished. You will not and cannot become what God intends you to be unless the Lord builds the house. This is Jacob building a house. He is going to the flesh, going to the pantry of what the flesh has to offer, and he's stolen everything out of it. And yet, after all this time, he has nothing. It's that that life that does not have zest. It does not have a smile. It does not have a a leap. It does not have a skip. There's no song in the night. He is missing something. It's the same thing many of us have missed in our Christianity. We have Christianity, but it's like Christianity in chains. But there's no more guilty verdict over our life. We're just still in chains. Why would we still be in chains if we were set free? Why does our kitchen sink not give out water? Let's rebuild this whole thing. Let's start at the beginning. Jacob you need something outside of yourself. You're looking for something, but you can't find it in yourself. You're not going to find it in Esau. You can only find it in God. He esteemed what God had to give. That sounds like us, doesn't it? I want it. I want it desperately. Look at this subtitle. He just didn't know how to get it. Well, yeah, there, there we are. There we are. We don't know how to get it unless the Lord builds the house. It's so obvious, it says it right there. How many of us have read that and still go back to trying to build the house? I mean, it's somewhat impractical to let the Lord build the house. I mean, how does that work? Oh, I'm letting the Lord build the house, are you? You see, we don't actually know what that means. We can read it, it just does not make any sense to us. What defines a heel grabber? They see the God blessing, and they desperately want the God blessing, but they attempt to get it through the flesh. And I'll define flesh for you here. Self-effort, self-discipline, self-restraint. How many of us, when it comes to loving, when it comes to knowing the Bible, when it comes to our prayer life, how many of us try out of our own strength to marshal a very disciplined, restrained life? When it comes to purity... Like being a man, I mean, I know all the gymnastic routines. It's like, all right, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to ever think this. And you're trying in your own strength. In, in Colossians, says, handle not, touch not, handle not, taste not. These things have an appearance of wisdom, but they do nothing to curb the flesh. They do nothing to curb the lusts that we have. You see, we have a root issue. And this self-effort, self-discipline, and self-restraint is not going to compensate for it. It looks good, and it gives a certain sense of stability for a season. As long as you're not tempted, oh, you, you feel very strong. But then when you get weak, that one time you're extra tired, or you've gotten frustrated that day, and you haven't been close to God, and then the enemy comes in at a side angle and gets you. Oh, what's wrong with us? We are attempting. It's sort of like building a little card house around ourselves as our protection. The enemy won't see me behind these cards. And yet your defense will fall down with the slightest breeze. You see, that's not what God has offered to us. Unless the Lord builds your house, then all your building and all your construction work that you're doing is going to be in vain. So... This is the heel grabbers amongst us. They see the God blessing, they desperately want the God blessing, but they attempt to get it through the flesh. Self-effort, self-discipline, self-restraint. They are not men and women of faith, but men and women of self-effort and self-righteousness. It sounds funny, I know it sounds harsh to say that you're not a man or a woman of faith when you live this way, but you're not. You see, this is self-righteousness. It's your attempts to do God work like, God, I can do this. God, I see what you, what you, yeah, you went to the cross. Well, I'll go to my own cross. I'll carry that load. I'll bear that burden. And you're doing it for God. You genuinely want to please God. It's not like you're wanting the world to just see you and to see your righteousness or do you, why do we go to this? Well, and we set down our bucket into it and pull it back up. It's like, what I don't have anything in my, in my well, god's well is teeming with life over here, and we keep going to the empty well so that we can prove that we did it i I know I have it in here somewhere I mean that's the motto of our culture: you can do it, never say you can't, you can do it and then here Eric violates the very protocol of our culture in saying you can't do it what and I'm not saying you can't do things there's plenty of things you can do you know afterwards if if You know, someone said, I bet you couldn't stack 10 chairs. You could say, I bet I can. Well, I bet you can too. In other words, there's things you can do, but I'm not talking about physical things. I'm not talking about Olympic events. I'm talking about spiritual things. Things that can only be gained through spiritual means, spiritual labor. And that is the form of labor that you are ill-equipped and unable to accomplish. So they believe that something outside of Jesus saves them. Now, you would have never actually had an out loud thought like that and said, yes, something outside of Jesus saves me. However, in a message like this, what we're doing is we're blowing away the fog bank. And we're saying, where's your confidence lie? Is it lying in your effort, in what you're doing, or does it truly lie in his effort, in what he did? They have clothed themselves in their own righteous work. So you're sitting here knitting all day long, making for yourself an outfit, some clothing of righteousness. And you put it around yourself. It doesn't look very good. You know, It has holes all throughout it. It's knit together. And then you come before God and say, what do you think? Can I have entrance into your kingdom? Uh, It has to be perfect. It has to be spotless. It has to be Him. If it is not the life of Jesus Christ, if it is not the perfect righteousness, the holy, holy holiness of God Almighty... You have no access. God has made that clear. And your attempts at righteousness are as filthy rags. And by the way, if you study that, that's a rather filthy rag. The legalist. So what are we talking about? We're talking about legalism. That's actually what this is. Legalism in Christianity today is a really funny thing. If anyone ever goes after a higher standard, it's called legalism. Well, that's actually not what legalism is. So let's define legalism here. Legalism is a heel grabber. That's what a legalist is. One who finds his confidence in man's means to accomplish God's ends, rather than in God's means to accomplish God's ends. You see, God's ends are the key issue here. Do you know there's two ways to go about getting God's ends? Some people in our Christian culture today think going after God's ends is legalism. No, no. That's not legalism. It's how you're going about to accomplish God's ends that defines if it's legalism or true Christianity. God's ends are just God's ends. He's going to build us to reveal himself and it's going to last. That's what he does. He's a carpenter. However, there is a wrong way to go about God's ends. And we could call it legalism. Paul refers to it as self-righteousness. Your attempt to gain God's ends in your own strength, in your own ability. Some common heels to grab. So you could say, well, I, I don't grab heels. Come on. So I'll go through a little short list of common heels that we do grab. It's really strange because as I remember, Jacob was caught red-handed. Just allow the spirit of God to catch you red-handed. It's okay. It's okay. It's always better to be caught red-handed than to end up in hell. Let's just be caught red-handed now and repent and let go of that and grab a hold of the right thing. So what are you grabbing onto? Some common heels to grab moral purity. If I can only keep my mind and my heart without spot and blemish, then fill in the blank. What are you thinking? If you were morally pure, then what? Well, then I would be right with God. Is that where your confidence lies? Is your confidence lying in your moral purity? Is moral purity good? Absolutely. But that's not how you get it. Is building a house good? Yes. But if you're the one building, if you're the one attempting to do it, you're laboring in vain. If you try and build moral purity your way, it's going to be in vain. It is not going to be a means of salvation. You will not be able to stand before the bar of judgment with your sewn together moral purity. Two, external righteousness. If I only wear this and don't wear that, do this and don't do that, then. We we can have this in a thousand different ways, whether it's how we dress, whether it's what we do with our physical body. We have these notions that if we look a certain way, smell a certain way, then we'll be right with God. Is it appropriate to dress and live a certain way? Of course. But if your confidence is in that, if that's where you reach, when God comes to you and says, So, what is your means of salvation? Do you have entry into heaven? Where do you look? Do you look to your pocket? And you have like just stowed away there and you keep checking it. Have you ever had some money in your pocket where you just kept checking it just to make sure it's still there? Or you ever carried around that one check, you know, for some business and it's like a big check, and you need to get it to the bank, and so you keep checking there it is. Okay, right, I still have that. When you are tested in your soul, when you reach, where do you reach? Do you reach to your pocket to say, All right, it's still there? I got my external righteousness, I got my moral purity, all right, I'm fine with God then. Is that where you look? Is that what you're looking to, your work? Some of you are like, what else is there? Well, that's what we'll get to. Compassionate rescue. If only I do good to the poor, adopt the orphan and visit the widow, then. Is that a good thing to do? Well, absolutely, but that's not what saves you. Is your confidence in that? Is that where you're looking? Have you grabbed that heel? Said, if I grab that heel, then. You see, you're looking for something. It's that one sense of peace, that joy that you see in scripture, that freedom, that liberty of soul. But this isn't where you find it. These are byproducts of allowing God to build the house. These are not where you find that life. Dutiful attendance. If only I stay faithful in my church commitment, then. As if God's watching that and going, hmm. All right, we got a good uh, good attendance record in church. All right, yeah, I think they're good enough. Yeah, I think I can allow them into heaven now. What What a demotion of the work of the cross. It's an insult to the spirit of grace. The work of God, what he came to do. Our situation was so vile, so desperate. And what Jesus Christ did in interposing his life was rescue us. He did a work. That is where our confidence lies Our confidence doesn't lie in something we have stowed away in our own pocket Our confidence lies in him and his ability Sacramental acts There's a whole bunch of people in christianity that think That if they get baptized in water and take holy communion, they're fine Is that where your confidence lies? Does it lie in an act? Oh, yeah, I was baptized uh, That isn't where you want to be put in your confidence Not in your work Spiritual disciplines. If only I get a good prayer time and a solid study time in daily, then. Ellerslie. Oh, how did that make the list? If only I go to Ellerslie, hear the teaching linger in the atmosphere, then. Is your confidence in this environment? See, these are all false answers. None of them bad. They're all wonderful. However, they are not where you can put your confidence do not grab a heel. Do not grab anything but God. So you have a grip. What are you going to do with it? It's a spiritual grip. And what you reach for determines where your faith is, where your confidence is. Are you reaching to your pocket and saying, okay, I got it. All right. I have confidence that God will not overlook this. This was, a one, this was one really good deed that I did. Where is your grip going? Where does your confidence lie on judgment day? Eric Ludy? why should we allow you into the courts of heaven where only holy, holy, holiness are allowed? Where only blazing, perfect righteousness is admitted? Why should we allow you? I'm digging around in my pockets. Well, uh, for about 10 straight years, I had a quiet time and I wrote in a journal and I prayed at least 15 minutes a day throughout that whole stretch. I faded in the 11th year, and then I sort of picked it up again in the 12th. It might not have been as diligent as it was between 25 and 35, but it was pretty good. That, this sounds pathetic, doesn't it? Where does your confidence lie on Judgment Day? Well, there's various things that you could say in response to that. Sir, Your Honor, my confidence lies in the work of Jesus Christ, His work was on my behalf and I am found in him. He built a house and that's where I live. His righteousness, his working, his holiness. I don't have it. He does. I've moved in. What's your position? You moved in. That's where our confidence lies. It lies in his working, his deeds. We reach into his pocket say, look at that. He did it. And his work is sufficient. Is your faith in what you do or what he did? So here's another way of saying it. Is your faith in what you built or in what he built? Because depending on where your faith goes, defines everything. Some of us have confidence. It's faith. It really is. It's faith in our own righteousness. And that faith kills us. But faith in his righteousness, faith in his work, faith in his accomplishment... Is what saves. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. You didn't do this. You see, unless the Lord builds the house, He built the house, He built your house. And you've moved in, and the moving in is faith. And as a result, you're saved by the working of God, which is grace. You are saved by the working of God by faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is the structure that God built for you. And he he handed you the deed. He unlocked the door for he is the door and he's the way in. And as you trusted him, you entered into his work, which is grace. And it's not of works. It's not of your working. It's not of your efforts. It's not of your heel grabbing. Lest anyone should boast. Otherwise, you'd be the one taking the credit for it. But you can't take credit for this. This was his work. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What an awkward moment this must have been. There, were, there was mumbling and grumbling and complaining in the camp of Israel. And as a result, fiery serpents came into the camp and were biting people. So if you were snake bit, you were dying. And there were tens of thousands of people that had died because of this snake bite. And so the people cried out to Moses and said, we have sinned. They recognized that something was wrong. And God gave Moses a solution. It's a very strange solution. But he took a symbol of a serpent, a bronze serpent, which would have gleamed white because it's burnished brass, and stuck it on a post or a pole or a tree. That which is a symbol of the curse hanging on a tree and anyone who looked upon it would be healed. Now, could you imagine how awkward that would be? You're sitting in your tent and someone says, yeah, did you hear? Someone shares with you the good news. Now, you have to acknowledge that you're snake bit. Who wants to do that? It takes humility, doesn't it? To say, yeah, I need to go. And look upon that. But of course, it's not just outside your tent. You have to walk through the whole camp to get it. And guess what? When you're walking through the camp, everyone could mutter to themselves and go, "Uh uh-huh, snake bit. Of course, we're all snake bit. Why don't we just get honest about it, huh? We all need the same thing. However, are you bold enough to stand up and do the work of faith? So there's a difference between the work of self-righteousness and the work of faith. The work of self-righteousness stays in its tent and tries to heal itself. Sticks balms and ointments on, saying, I can do this. Yet the work of faith says, I'm a sinner. And there's only one means of salvation. But what about the opinions and the, your reputation and the mutterings of the people of Israel? What if they know that you too had grumbled, and as a result, you were stake bit? So be it. May the world all know. May they all know that I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. And so imagine exiting your tent and walking through the camp, knowing that there is a means of salvation. So where do you go? You go to that means of salvation. That's the labor of faith. The labor of faith is to go after that which God has promised. The labor of self-righteousness is to remain in your tent and say, I can do this. You can hear about the cross. You can even esteem it and go, oh, that's wonderful. However, you're still sticking balms and ointments on your problem that can only be solved by looking upon a tree and a man who is cursed for you. And his name is Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Spiritual insomnia, the inability to fall asleep. There is a line in the midst of Psalm 127 that you may not have fully caught. It doesn't fit in there. See, it says, unless the Lord builds the house... Unless the Lord keeps the house, and then it goes off on some seeming tangent to talk about sleep. And then it gets on the topic of children. That's why I said it It sounds like a rambling process. However, this is the gospel. The gospel is unless he's the one doing it, unless he's the one keeping it, unless you enter into that rest, you cannot produce the fruit that you know a house is supposed to show. Spiritual insomnia. Insomnia is the inability to fall asleep, for those of you that aren't familiar with that word. So my subtitle sort of clarifies that. The inability to fall asleep. Isn't that funny? We know we're supposed to sleep in Christ. We know we're supposed to enter into this rest, but we are wide awake. How do I just, can I take a sleeping pill for this? How do I just go to sleep and trust Christ? Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So, by the way, this is Psalm 127. You should be very familiar with this by now. In fact, we could do some memory tests uh, on this passage. This is a whole chapter of the Bible. They labor in vain who built it. Unless the Lord keeps the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so, he gives his beloved sleep. What a strange statement. What's he talking about? He gives his beloved sleep. So you're trying to find the sleep now. So the next thing I say is you need to fall asleep in Christ. You need to rest in Christ. So what are the, what's the next thing you do? Grab a heel to try and do that. You see, you want to somehow solve your spiritual dilemma. He's already solved it. So he is saying, look, I've given you sleep. He gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. The rest of faith. Ceasing from the labor of the flesh, ceasing from heel grabbing, and laboring after the Spirit. Isn't that strange? What I just said is ceasing from labor so that you can labor. However, it's a different sort of laboring. God doesn't want you to be passive and just sort of flop on the ground and say, oh, God, I'm sleeping in you. I'm resting in you. He does want you to rest, but it's a rest of faith. And faith is, it's actually an action. To believe is our work as a believer. Did you know that in the kingdom of heaven, that's what it actually says? That what is the work of God? To believe. Jesus was about his father's business. There is a business in the kingdom of heaven. And our job description isn't going to China to share the gospel. Isn't going to North Korea to wash feet, the feet of the saints. It's to believe. I'm not saying you couldn't do those other things. I'm saying that's what our job description is. And it's an action. It is something we do. But in scripture, it's known as the rest of faith. So the rest of faith. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So how do you get righteousness? By believing. See, it's not by working, it's by believing that you actually accomplish something and the building takes place. For he that has entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works. You haven't ceased from work. It's called grace. You enter into grace and grace is the working of God. And so what's he going to do with this hand? Flop it on the counter? He's going to pick it up and start washing feet with it. What's he going to do with these eyes? Close them and put you into a deep sleep for the rest of your life on earth? No, he's going to cause you to see the needs of those around you. What's he going to do with these ears? Tune them out? No, you're going to start hearing the cries of the lost. What's he going to do with his heart? He's going to awaken it to feel his burdens and to carry them. What's he going to do with these feet? He's not just going to lock you into a sleeping position. You're going to be active, marching into this world, but it's not going to be you. It's going to be his spirit dwelling in you. You rest in him. He does the work. And that's called grace. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh... But after the spirit, for if you live after the flesh, you shall die. But if you through the spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Which are you choosing to grab Esau? Where does your confidence lie? Hey, I, I, I have his birthright. I have the blessing from Isaac. Isaac or Jacob could stop right there and say, I have it. I have everything I could possibly get. And yet he doesn't have it and he knows it. Are you willing to admit that all your heel grabbing has actually gotten you nothing? Are you willing, like Paul, to consider all of your righteousness as filthy rags? It's worthless. Stick it in the trash can. It's his work of righteousness that is something. And that's where I put my hope. That's where I put my confidence. Israel. This is the new name for Jacob. You know that Jacob received a new name from God? The same way we do. We're all Jacob. We're all the heel grabber. We mean well. Guess what? We're still the second. We're the one God has has given up his life to preserve and to build and to establish. However, we're going about it the wrong way. Jacob is heel grabber. But what is Israel? What does that mean? Well, a very simple way of saying it is God grabber. Remember your hand? Where's it grabbing? Are you grabbing the flesh? Are you grabbing self-effort, self-restraint, self-discipline? Is that your means of trying to appease God? Or are you willing to open up and let that go and grab a hold of God? The heavenly picture of the rest of faith, the call to the promised land. So Jacob is in uh, Midian and he has uh, been there for 10 to 20 years and this is what happens. And the Lord said unto Jacob, or he said unto the one who takes hold of the heel, it's a planter, a deceiver, a layer of snares. So that's us. So when the Lord said to all of us, return unto the land of thy fathers, return unto the form of Christianity that actually works and to thy kindred, and I will be with thee. So God's calling us. He's saying, you tired of this, this, this misery This form of life that is always living in fear. I mean, Esau had vowed to kill him. The guy lives in fear and trepidation. He has to con. He has to do all these machinations to try and get ahead. And that's how he's even doing it. His father-in-law is not too happy with him because his deceptions have been working. And he has secured multiple birthrights from all sorts of people. He's stolen is the best way of saying it. He's a smart character. And yet he's a heel grabber. But God says unto us, the heel grabber, the ones that have attempted to make our life work in our own strength, in our own way, in our own vision. We love God, we esteem him, but we're still doing it our way. He says to all of us, return to the land of thy fathers and to thy kindred and I will be with thee. So Jacob heads out with all his, his wives and children and cattle and horses I mean, he's not a mighty host. He has no armed men. He has no military instruments of war. And guess who's awaiting him up ahead? Esau. The flesh. It's the same thing that stands in our way, too. Have you ever been able to get past the flesh? You know that that desire that you have to never have an impure thought again? I'll never. I'll never have an impure thought again. Well, who gets you? Esau. He's so strong. He has 400 armed men with him. Yeah, how are you going to do against that with your sheep and goat? You know, that's not much of a military arsenal that you have there. What are you going to do, sick your wife on him? What do you have? You have nothing in and of yourself, in and of your own pockets. You're empty. You are poor and impoverished. Will you finally acknowledge that? That grabbing the heel has gotten you nowhere. And you're still under the thumb of the flesh, even though you think you've done it. Even though you think you're over the flesh, the flesh is still standing in front of you with a scowl saying, you will not pass. What are you going to do? Well, many of us, this is where we're at in our spiritual life. We're sick and tired of the defeat. We're sick and tired of turning on our faucet and no water coming out. So at a certain point, you either throw out the sink... And say, this thing doesn't work. Or you cry out to God and say, God, I think I built this wrong. I think I'm going about this the wrong way. I want to return to the land of my fathers as you've asked me to. Could you lead me there? And he says, I will be with thee. If you desire to return, you can know one thing and take it to the bank. He will lead you there. He is far more eager for you to return to the land of your fathers than you are to get there. But we are disgusting, heel-grabbing, supplanters, deceivers, and layers of snares. We're deserving of death. We're deserving of eternal separation from God. The, the heel-grabbing we've done is disgusting in the eyes of heaven. It is repulsive in the eyes of heaven because we have turned to a false god, a false savior, instead of our true savior. We have rebelled. We have rejected our God. We have spat upon his face. Why would he call us? is that an amazing thought? This is why this is good news. For God so loved the Jacobs. For God so loved those that wanted what he had, but didn't quite know how to get it. He loves us and he perseveres with us and he's patient with us. And he says, Jacob, come, I will be with you. That's where many of us are. I mean, what would bring us to a church like this in the first place? It's not because we're looking to be cozy in our spiritual life. It's because we're willing to head out there and somehow make it past Esau for the first time in our life. We've never made it. But somehow, we know that God will be with us. We know that there's a way through. We just don't know how to get through. I don't know if you guys know the story, but they stopped for the night, and rumor passed to Jacob that Esau was waiting for him. And the next morning, they would run into him. Do you imagine that? That one thing that has always hounded you your entire life is now staring you in the face. But to get to the land of promise, you have to go through it. How are you going to get there? So it says that Jacob split up his his group into two groups. And he went off by himself that night to a place that the Hebrews know as Peniel, which means the face of God. Not to the flesh. For the first time in his life, he doesn't turn to the flesh. He doesn't connive. He doesn't attempt to deceive. I mean, think about all the things he could have done to hoodwink Esau. He doesn't go to any of that. He goes to the place that every one of us must learn to go to. He goes to God. I know that's obvious. We're in church. Of course, everyone goes to God. No, it's funny. We talk about God, we esteem God, but we go to the flesh. And we go to our own machinations, our own ideas, our own thoughts, our own conniving to make our way through this life. And God says... And he goes off to this place, and in the dark of the night it says that there was a man. It's God. It's called the face of God. Even the name of the place shows us who this is. An angel of God is there. And he grabs a hold of this God, Jesus, the man. He grabs a hold of him. And when you grab a hold of God, how do you grab a hold of God? You grab a hold knowing that there's no one else you can now grab. There's no other solution. This, this grip that has spent itself on so many other things now has officially found its home. You have given up being a heel grabber. You are now officially a God grabber. And when you grab a hold of God and he says, hey, let me go, it's called the test of faith. And you say, no, I cannot. For you have the only thing that I need. You are the only one that has it. I am missing something and I cannot find it in myself. I cannot find it in my Jacobness. I can only find it in you. So, what do we do when we're the heel grabber? Well, God gives us the assignment. He says, Let the wicked forsake his way. Open up the grip, let it go. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. And he will have mercy on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Oh, amazing. The making of Israel. Now, remember I said God gave Jacob a new name. It's the name Israel. Well, when did he get that name? He got that name when he relinquished his hold on the heel. He relinquished the layer of snares. He relinquished the deceiver. He let it go. And he turned with that same grip and grabbed God. Then he received a new name. He turned from the kingdom of darkness unto the kingdom of light. He gave up trusting in himself and trusted in God. And he received the name that has always crowned the people that have done the same throughout history. They're called the people of God, the people of faith. The people of faith are Israel. They're the ones that have forsaken self-effort and have turned to God and believed. True Israel is marked by faith. That's what marks true Israel. It's not a genetic lineage. It's faith that marks true Israel. The making of Israel. And the man of God said, Let me go for the day breaks. And Jacob, the heel grabber, said, I will not let thee go except thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? Could you imagine this moment? What is your name? This is called the confession of sin. And he said, I'm a heel grabber. I'm a layer of snares. I'm a supplanter. I'm a deceiver. And what did God say? Thy name shall be called no more heel grabber. Thy name shall be called no more layer of snares. Thy name shall be called no more supplanter, deceiver, but Israel. For as a prince thou hast power with God and with men and hast prevailed. The great work of the cross. The Lord hath... Listen to this, because now you know two names. Most people that study scripture don't always think at this level, but I want you to focus on what this says. We have Jacob And we have Israel. What does it say? The Lord hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. He took the hunk of sin and redeemed it and then glorified himself through the God grabber. When we grab a hold of God, he is glorified in and through it. God is building something to show, to reveal, to demonstrate to the highest heavens when he does the construction work what comes of it. He takes us; he purchases us with his very blood, converts this mass into something that will bring him glory. And he says, "Israel, that is your new name. You've let go of the heel and you've grabbed a hold of me. You've repented of the old and you've grabbed a hold of the new. The gospel hidden in Psalm one twenty-seven. Have you seen it yet? It's there." Just like it is, by the way, in every other psalm and the rest of the Bible. It's everywhere. The gospel is everywhere. Jesus just comes pouring out of Scripture. Whichever way you turn, it's like, Jesus? Whoa, what are you doing? Jesus? He's like, hey. Everywhere you go, it's like, Jesus? Yeah, there I am. He's everywhere. The gospel hidden in Psalm 127. Listen to this. This is God's construction model. Remember the three letters in Banna? You have the house, the building. Then you have the keeping, the continuance, so it'll last forever. And then you have the show, the produce, that which is produced to show his glory. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Hey, Jacob, unless you let go of that heel and grab a hold of me and rest in faith. You see, the rest of faith is actually a grip. But it's a grip on the one who does the work. You see, a Sabbath rest is exactly this. It is turning from our labor and resting in God who does the labor of our salvation. He alone does it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord keeps the city. The watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward, like arrows in the hand of a warrior. You see, it's the result of letting the Lord build the house. It's the result of letting the Lord keep the house. It's the reward. The fruit comes out. The fruit is born. The children that truly will bring glory to Almighty God, come forth. The fruit of the womb is a reward like arrows in the hand of a warrior. So are the children of one's youth. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. Well, that's how an individual life is built. That's how a family is built. That's how a church is built. Get this. That's how a nation is built. Same principle. Who builds? God does. If the gospel is not central in an individual life, the life stinks. If the gospel is not central in a family, the family stinks. If the gospel is not central in a church, the church stinks. And if the gospel is not central in a nation, the nation stinks. There is no special rules for nations where they are ruled by secular ideas they must be ruled by biblical ones, by God. If God is not at the center, the nation will perish. It's just a matter of time. So if something is going to return to its strength so that God would build it, because unless God builds it, we labor in vain. We can try and change this nation a lot of different ways, and many of us have had different strategies for it. However, I'm going to tell you the way. His name is Jesus. And his, his method has always been, and always will be, The gospel, the proclamation of the gospel, which strikes the individual life and changes it and then changes the family and then changes the church. And when the churches truly are changed and their lives produce fruit and produce children that stand against the enemy in the gate, then suddenly the nation will be altered. Either that or they'll kill us. There's just two options. Grabbing God instead of the heel of self-effort. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So the necessary trip to Perth, we have some various characters in here that are always going to Perth, Australia. So that's, that's where Perth is, by the way. It's a long way away. And so if you've ever had to travel to Perth, Uh, Then you'd understand i've traveled to australia, but never to perth. That's like the extra Continent travel, you know, you just go into australia is not quite going to perth. This is a massive trip So imagine that we were all called to perth It's like well, that doesn't sound that difficult. And so what do you do you stick on your backpack? And you get your water bottle and head out the door Well, that's not quite how you get to perth You see perth is impossible to reach So a lot of us in our Christianity, what do we do? We stick on our backpack of our efforts, of our energies, of our good intentions, stick a water bottle in there and head out the door. And we can't quite figure out why we don't get there. What's wrong? Well, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord creates the way, unless the Lord does the work, you cannot do it. So the necessary trip to Perth, there are two ways of going about it. One way, self-effort. You can try and walk there. You won't get there. I don't know if any of you have ever studied a map. But you can't get to the western side of Australia by foot unless you can walk on water. Now, imagine that you decided that you were going to uh, swim. That's another option. You could swim. You're not going to make it. People struggle to swim the English Channel, let alone the ocean waters. Do you imagine how many things are out there to sink you down or to devour you along the way? You can't make it. I know some of you are like thinking, oh, I could. <laughs> You've never seen me swim. Even though I haven't seen your swimming, and I'm guessing you're probably really good. You still won't make it. And I'm not trying to make that a dare so you go out and try and prove me wrong. I'm just trying to break it to you as gently as I can. You can't make it. So there's two ways to Perth. You know that there's actually a way that has been created for you to get to Perth? Wouldn't it be strange when there is a way that is available to you to get to Perth and yet you choose your own method? You choose your own feet or you choose your own swim stroke. Why would you do that? It would be considered insanity. And yet there's a means by which you can get there. And the same is true with Christianity. The impossible has been commissioned to us. Return to the land of your fathers. All right, God, I want to go to the land of my father's. Well, the only way to get there is by God Almighty. So here in the middle of Psalm 127, we have a statement that I haven't brought up yet, but I've saved it for now. And it is, it is vain for you to rise early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he gives his beloved sleep. So I have a little parenthetical statement around it because remember, the beginning of this is, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord keeps the house, You see, if you are trying to do it yourself, it's called the bread of sorrow. The fruit that you're gaining from it is sorrowful. So I'm going to stay up late. I'm going to rise up early. No, it leads to the bread of sorrow. You will never get it. You're going to try your hardest. And yet, you're only going to eat the bread of sorrow that way. So, it is vain for you to rise up early, to hike cross country, to Perth, to sit up late, to attempt to swim across the ocean, To eat the bread of sorrows, to do this trip in your own ability, will be the bread of sorrow. For so he gives his beloved a jetliner. Something that defeats the law of gravity. That when you enter into it and rest, you know that most of us would say that traveling to Perth via a jetliner is hard work on our body? Just like faith. Resting is not passivity. Resting is an active engagement. And by the way, international travel is not the most enjoyable thing. Traveling in Christ is at times very difficult. But I tell you what, so satisfying. For you can have a confidence that this jetliner, known as Jesus, is the way to the Father. And he can't help but succeed in his journey. When you rest in Jesus Christ and you say, you do the flying. You find That you really do, in this natural realm, travel from one place to the next. You travel from mediocrity to victory. You travel from being defeated by sin to overcoming it. It's not a passivity where you just think good thoughts about God. When you rest in God, you actually go somewhere. The house is actually built. The house is kept. Children are the reward of such a decision. The fruit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control is what comes out. And it is a glory unto God. For God hath redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in the God-grabber. In those that have turned and grabbed a hold of God. Instead, he will show his fruit in and through them. Put off. So, we are all in Adam. We must put off Adam is what scriptures say. It's like a clothing. It's our own works. Remember that thing we stitched together? It's full of holes and it's, this, it's like a filthy rag, our own righteousness. Put it off. So ditch the rising early, sitting up late and eating the bread of sorrows. Put off the old man, Paul says. Put off anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Put off the old man with his deeds. And we're supposed to put on. So one way of looking at this is enter the jetliner, which we could call the rest of faith. There's a jetliner on the side, it says the rest of faith. Isn't that a a great name for a jetliner? The rest of faith. You enter into it and it will fly for you, but you still must choose to enter and then you must remain. And if you remain, the principle of a jetliner is where it goes, you go. So if it goes to Taiwan, you would go to Taiwan. If it went to South Africa, you would go to South Africa. If it went to Perth, you would go to Perth. But what if it went to the right hand of the Father? You go where it goes. And Jesus has made a way for us to the Father. And so when we enter into Him by faith, He takes us to the place of the Father. You know what the Father has? The Holy Spirit. He has everything we need. And so he takes us to the place where all the power, all the ability, everything that is required, everything that is necessary to live this life. Jacob has none of it. All he has is his own strength. But the God grabber has the power of God. What are you doing grabbing a heel? Grab God. Repent of the heel. Grab God and never let go put on the armor of light, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, put on Christ, put on the new man, put on the whole armor of God, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the new man, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Becoming a Banaya, Wouldn't you like to be a mighty man? Especially like this guy. This is my favorite one. You know that when Solomon took over the kingdom, Baniya Baniya became the commander-in-chief of his armed forces. He was like this mighty warrior all throughout his life. It wasn't just the time of David. But then he inherited the army under Solomon. And he was the leader of it all. He was built by God. So look at this subtitle. Built to last, built to reveal. Christianity, when built correctly, is built to last. It's not built to falter. It's built to last. And it's also built to reveal his glory. That's what's woven into this guy's name. Banna. Banna Yah. When Yahweh builds. Oh, I love it. The first rule of God construction. Here it is. If you can wrap your soul around this, everything in Christianity starts to work. You can't do it. Only he can. I know it sounds so utterly simple that we miss it. We move right by, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. Some of the things that are most crucial in our spiritual life, even though you think you know it, just stop afresh and say, God, do I know that? Do I understand this? And then check where your hand is. It's like, well, well I, I don't really trust that. I'm just sort of keeping it balanced on the shelf. Why is your hand on that? Why are you gripping that thing in your life? If you're gripping spikenard, remember Mary of Bethany? What does she have in her hand? Spikenard. You know what it says in the Greek? It calls it Pistikos Spikenard, or Pistikos Nardos, which is Spikenard, but then Pistikos is a word that means the object of one's faith. For whatever reason, the New Testament doesn't translate that. It just translates Spikenard. But so the Spikenard was the object of her trust and her confidence. She had a hand on it. And so what did she do with it? She broke it open on Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. And when she did it, you know what Jesus said? As a memorial to this woman, everywhere the gospel is preached, what she did needs to be declared. Why? Well, because that's the gospel. Take what you are putting your trust in, your confidence in, outside of Jesus Christ, and break it open on Jesus Christ. Get your hand free so that you can grab God. Grab God, and God will build you. God will build the house. God will keep the house. And God will give you a reward of spiritual fruit that will change the earth and stand against the enemy at the gate.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church of Ellersley in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you do have any questions, comments or just need more information about Ellersley, please visit our website at www.ellersley.com. Again, that website is www.e-l-l-e-r-s-l-i-e.com. For Ellersley Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.